0: and welcome to episode 1174 of Effectively Wild, Effectively Wild, Take You Pick, Fangraphs Baseball Podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, the source of the podcast, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben is actually the source of the podcast. This is our second team preview episode for the season upcoming. We will talk in this episode with Andy McCullough about the Dodgers, and we will talk with Barry Jackson about kind of the Marlins, but mostly about ownership and the finances. (laughs) Before we get to that, we, I
1: don't know, we probably have some stuff Talk about a little bit of banter? Hit me. A little bit. I think so. By the way, we are definitely, our affects are not wild. We are low affect people, I would say. But we want to talk just briefly about the MLBPA camp, I think, that is actually happening now. We discussed the possibility. We discussed the last time it happened in 1995. I wrote a story about it. And since then, the actual camp seems to have materialized. So by the next time we publish a podcast, possibly, there will be free agents who are still unsigned at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, according to Ken Rosenthal. And it sounds like Bo Porter will be the Jackie Moore of this year's camp. Jackie Moore was the manager of the Homestead Camp in 95. Bo Porter is going to be that guy. And uh, I guess it's going to open Wednesday and then run at least through the beginning of March. It sounds like some of Scott Boris's clients may not attend, others may attend, but I i don't know. I, I'm sort of surprised, I guess, that it's happening just because when we talked about it last time, we discussed how maybe there's less of a need for it now than there was 23 years ago when this happened for the only other time in baseball history There are just as many free agents unsigned, maybe. So, in that sense, it's needed. But, you know, given that people have personal trainers, they stay in shape all year round, the Boris guys have the Boris complex, which is probably the equal of a team's spring training complex. And then there are many other ways to get the word out, you know, with, I mean, you could tweet or Instagram a video of yourself taking batting practice or something if you want people to see you. So there's maybe less of a need for it than there used to be, but apparently still enough of a need for it that the players association decided to do it and i assume it will be pretty well attended and it's been put together awfully quick i yeah. I, I
0: mean look i didn't i didn't do the research into the last time this happened that's that's all you i don't remember it i was too young i'm mostly just interested to see what this experience is like uh, or how long players are actually going to be there because I have no idea what to expect except that I am growing increasingly tired of hearing about all the unsigned free agents every single day I wake <laughs> up expecting that yeah three of them will have signed overnight and then I'll have a little bit of a panic and then I'll write about them but it's really as much as I refuse to believe that there's any form of collusion and I think that this is mostly just the fault of the CBA and also the agents it's Really incredible that we're about a week away from the start of spring training and there are some high profile. I was just reading an article. I think it was a Rustin Dodd article about Mike Moustakis. And right now, no one wants him. It <laughs> seems like Moustakis. He's not. Look, Mike Moustakis is not a great player. He, uh, he had his best year in 2015. Then he, he got injured. And last year, he was a two, two and a half win player. He's just a fine everyday third baseman. He was about 29 years old. But no one, the team that he was linked to, the Angels, signed a shortstop to play third base. And Mm -hmm. that's the situation. So it is just a remarkably slow offseason where I understand in every single individual case why the players remain unsigned. I saw, I mean, there's all this talk about like J.D. Martinez and this is now diverging from your topic a little bit but there's all this talk about jd martinez and and jake Arietta just being so frustrated they're just going to hold out until they get the offers they want yeah. well then the, the baseball can move on without J- jd martinez or jake Arietta. Yeah. there are players on the teams that would be interested they're perfectly fine and they can they can get by so i don't i don't think that if you're if you're jd martinez and you're holding out for seven years and 200 million dollars i don't think that you can just Sit there and wait for it, because I don't think it's going to materialize. It's at least a hell of a gamble. I understand mm-hmm. what you're aging to Scott Boris. You can be optimistic about it, but uh, what? The rumor the other day was that J.D. Martinez was expressing his frustration with the Red Sox, who were reported to have offered five years and $125 million to right. sign him. The high bid.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to, at this point, it seems like kind of a a game of chicken, except, you know, one side is this massive team that is worth billions of dollars and has a lot of other players. And the other side is one player. So I don't know that the player is going to win that kind of confrontation. Although there certainly are still teams that have holes and would be improved by signing some of these players. But Maybe fewer of those teams than you'd expect just because you do have a lot of separation or projected separation in some of the divisions where you just have some teams where they just don't seem to have a lot of need to improve right now. They're going to get to the playoffs one way or another. So I agree, and it it's tough to tell, like reading the reports, like if it's accurate that Eric Hosmer has maybe multiple seven-year contract offers and is holding out for nine, I mean – If that is true, then it's hard to feel like he is, you know, getting screwed over in any way. Like, who would give Eric Hosmer a nine-year contract now or, or ever, really? So it's hard to say how much of it is free agents maybe having expectations that are set by, I guess, being the most attractive players in the market. But not being as attractive as the best players in the market typically are. So uh, Russell Carlton wrote about that at, at BP this week. Like, if these guys are thinking of themselves as the elite players just because they are, you know, the top guys listed on the MLB trade rumors ranking of free agents or something, well... That may be the case this winter, but historically it may not have been the case. You know, I don't want to talk
0: about Eric Hosmer anymore. He can hold out for whatever he wants. He's not understand I don't it's not even it's not Hosmer's fault. The players don't do this themselves. They're not the ones negotiating. It's Scott Boris. Scott Boris has decided that Eric Hosmer is an eight or nine year player. And if he gets it, well, yeah. Credit him.
1: I'm not gonna Agents work for the players, so they do have some say in this. And you know, I mean, if my agent, who is the person who's supposed to be able to read the market, tells me that I'm worth X over X, then you know, I I might believe him. But ultimately, the agent does work for the player so it it's kind of both a little bit.
0: You know what? If if Hosmer is sitting on two offers that are roughly seven years and 140 million dollars, then those teams should say, "All right, here's nine years and 140 million dollars," and then
1: just see what he takes. Yeah, that's another option. Well, what did you think? We never talked about the Todd Frazier signing with the Mets. You wrote about him in a way, but we've talked most of the winter about how free agents aren't signing, but when they do sign, the terms seem fairly reasonable and like what we would have expected. And Frazier seems to be a a bit of a divergence from that in that two years and 17 million, certainly less than I would have expected Todd Frazier to make or that any sort of like dollars per win model that we've been using for a while now would suggest that he should make because he's been an above average player for several years consecutively now. And, you know, he's getting up there in age and He's only been like a two to three win guy the last couple of years, but still, two years, 17, that is not a lot of money at all.
0: Yeah, my only hesitation here in analyzing this contract that it's faced is that Todd Frazier did seemingly badly want to stay in or around New York, and so he might have yeah. taken a substantial discount, but again, he's a third baseman in a market that has zero interest in Mike Moustakis, so this is just a difficult yeah. time to be a third baseman who's a free agent to begin with, but I would assume he gave the Mets some sort of discount. I'm a little bit surprised he didn't end up with the Yankees, but as we talked about with Eric Longenhagen and Colleen McDaniel and Chris Mitchell, Miguel Andujar, seems pretty exciting. And so if you're the Yankees, you might figure that having Andujar and Glaber Torres means that you don't really need to invest in a third slash first baseman like Todd Frazier. And with the Mets, he can play almost every day. So I kind of understand it, but it was definitely an unexpectedly low deal, even if you figure he did grant the Mets some form of hometown, home region, home region discount. (laughs) I don't really know how to express it. I don't know where Mm -hmm. Tom's River is, but apparently that's (laughs) a town that gets mentioned every single time that Todd Frazier's name is brought up on
1: (laughs) area television. It does. All right. One last thing. I don't know whether you saw the article that J.J. Cooper wrote at Baseball America. He proposed this idea of a tank tax. I saw a bunch of people discussing this. So he basically, he says, you know, the current system is not Disincentivizing teams to Rebuild and The you know a draft lottery System probably wouldn't change Things all that much so he proposes The same draft system continues To exist the worst team picks first The second worst picks second etc With one caveat any Team that fails to win 70 games In back-to-back seasons Faces a 10 spot draft Penalty so if you have One bad season like you know the Giants last year, no problem. But if you have two sixty-win seasons in a row, you have that penalty. So instead of drafting first, you draft eleventh, and then the penalty escalates, kind of like the luxury tax. So if you win fewer than seventy-three seasons in a row, then it's a fifteen-spot draft penalty. Four consecutive seasons, it's a twenty-spot draft penalty. What do you think of the general idea of a, a tank tax? <sighs>
0: I suppose if the sense is that too many teams are just stripping it down to the studs, then you do need to build. It seems like there is a developing consensus and not just among agents but even among some executives that baseball has not done enough to incentivize winning. I don't know how much I really believe that, but I guess if you look at how franchise values have grown even for terrible teams like, I don't know, the Miami Marlins, then you can see how maybe the teams don't really have to care about their bottom line in any given year because they're just making hundreds of millions of dollars over a 5 or 10 year span. So it would be nice to see teams incentivized to win more I guess really the, the issue to me is and remains just finding some way to give money to players who aren't free agents yet, and I'm not really that concerned. Teams have been rebuilding forever, and I feel like a lot of writers have gotten really aggressive in confusing rebuilding and tanking this offseason. There used to be a difference, and we've talked about this difference before. Tanking is going full Astros, and rebuilding is just a regular, we're not going to win soon, so let's get long-term assets. There's a difference between the two. I don't think that if you look at, I don't know, the Rays right now, they're not building. I don't think that they're tanking. I don't think the Reds are tanking. The only team right now that seems to be actively tanking is the Marlins, uh, at mm-hmm. least as of this offseason, right? And there are other teams who just aren't aren't improving immediately, I guess. Teams like yeah. the... The Tigers or what, the Braves haven't signed a free agent so far. But it used to be when tanking was first used in a baseball context that people would try to be precise about who is tanking and who is just doing a regular rebuild. And now, Mm -hmm. if you aren't building, you're being accused of tanking, which I don't think is fair.
1: Yeah, and JJ says in one of his first few sentences here... And when we're coming off a stretch where the previous three World Series champions won after complete teardowns that led to woeful big league play, it's understandable other teams have tried to replicate that formula. So the last two World Series champions, sure, Cubs and Astros, but the Royals, I don't think you could describe what they did as a complete teardown. It was uh, being bad for two decades. Yeah, they had a 20-year tank. (laughs) Yeah, just because of incompetence combined with low payroll, small market stuff. So... I kind of agree. I, I mean, it's a you know, it's an interesting idea, creative solution. I'm not sure that it's a solution to a, an acute problem that we actually have. It's I don't know. I, I think we're maybe being a little myopic and kind of looking at this one outlier winter, which may or may not be an indication of things to come. It it may very well be a thing indicator of things to come, but I'm not sure how much that has to do with the tanking and how much it just has to do with teams not wanting to sign free agents to long-term deals that historically haven't provided a, a great return. On investment. I, I, I'm not sure either. I, it feels like one of us needs to do a deeper dive into this or something because there certainly have always been teams that were bad and teams that were not really trying to win, or if they were trying, were trying so poorly that it didn't really matter that they were trying. Or, I mean, teams that were bad for decades long stretches just because, you know, like going back to the Philadelphia A's or teams like that, or the Washington Senators, or you know, the Browns. I mean, just teams that were bad for year after year after year and just were perpetual perennial cellar dwellers because they couldn't compete and they didn't have the resources to compete. And teams that functioned essentially as like major league level farm teams for other franchises and We don't have that so much anymore, maybe Marlins aside. So I'm not convinced that it is a a real existential threat. And if there are some teams that are not trying to win actively in 2018, that's okay, I think, as long as they're doing so with a purpose. Like, I don't know that... really would help that much to incentivize teams to get to like 70 wins if that just means they'll have to you know sign kind of like a middling free agent or two or or not trade someone who could bring back prospects when his value is still high and accelerate the return to being not a 70 win team but a 90 win team or something like i i don't know that that's actually better to have more 70 win teams as opposed to more 90 win and 60 win teams. I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't think we want a whole lot of like Astros and Cubs doing what they did simultaneously, but it's hard to have that. And I'm not sure that we really do have that.
0: And baseball would control it baseball effectively prevents too many teams from tanking right now at the same time anyway, just because you can't have five or six teams staying at the same time because they won't get the draft picks or the the international money that they're going for. So if teams look around and they figure, well, these two teams are already way worse than us. We'll never draft first. Well, then that team is going to have some sort of incentive to not go all the way down. Now, referring to recent teams that have tanked, I know that it's, of course, more complicated than just looking at payroll. And I do acknowledge what the Cubs have done. But just to, just to point out what has happened here, the, uh, the Cubs recently have bottomed out at an opening day payroll of $93 million. That was 2014 when they were sort of in a lull. $93 million. The Astros, of course, bottomed out at 26. 26 million dollars (laughs) yeah the astros spent less than the cubs lowest in 2011 2012 2013 2014 and 2015 so the astros really tanked the cubs were more like "Eh, we're not going to be very good so there's a (laughs) there's a difference there but in any case the the hardest thing to do when you're going through baseball history like you mentioned the possibility of doing a deep dive here hardest thing to do when you're going through history is to try to identify well what was the what was the team's behavior at this point you Mm. you have past record but you don't really know what their direction was necessarily you just have Mm -hmm. the number of wins and losses and just speaking from personal experience of course i've seen a number of mariners teams that if you looked at their record you think that team was clearly rebuilding no they weren't they were trying to be good it happened in 2008 and 2010 but you're right i haven't paid attention to this for long enough to know how often historically teams would go into a year acknowledging that they're not prepared to win you know like in i don't know in 1996 were teams going in being like yeah we know we're bad Mm.
1: Yeah, like maybe the language is different. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, people are more tolerant of teams coming out and saying, Yeah, we're, you know, looking ahead to two thousand twenty or whatever, and we're investing in the farm system and all of that, just because people know and care about farm systems and prospects today, and it's more acceptable to say that because the Astros and the Cubs just did it and look how well it worked for them. Mm -hmm. Not that it will work that well for everyone, but yeah, maybe the actual behavior or the reality of the situation isn't all that different. It's just sort of the messaging.
0: Yeah. I mean, just because teams didn't have projections 25 or 30 years ago doesn't mean that the actual reality of the situations were any different. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we had Patrick Dubuque on some time ago and we talked about, well, would baseball be better if we didn't have projections and you know if you're a fan of uh, who's bad if you're a fan of the reds and you go into this season in 2018 you can say okay we're almost certainly the fifth best team in our division or if you want to put it another way first worst but <laughs> if you were 20 or 30 years ago and the front office is like no we think we actually have a chance this year and you don't have projections so you don't know you just know oh our team wasn't very good last year but it's young so you know mm-hmm. there's always a chance maybe that's better but i feel like th- that's just spring training messaging and then when the season starts mm-hmm. There's really no difference. You notice, oh, this team is inferior to the teams that it's playing most of the time. So- yeah. I'm not a. I'm not super concerned, but I also understand I am not a team fan anymore. I am not a player or player representative. The entire problem is just that players feel like they're not getting enough money. That's all that this is. If people can find some way to deliver more money to the players, everything would be settled and teams can continue to rebuild while being left alone and not bothered by the national media. But I understand I'm coming from this from an intellectual perspective. I think you are as well. And so this is just Mm -hmm. more like something to examine as opposed to something to fret about. I understand why some people are fretting. I think it's overstated because there's just nothing else to talk about right now. But whatever. Maybe this is something like pace of game where if we leave things alone that it'll only get worse and maybe people are Mm -hmm. trying to respond to a problem that's only developing. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we're going to have a scourge of tanking that is going to be any more dramatic than what we've seen throughout baseball history
1: yeah all right let's take a quick break and we'll be back with andy nicola to talk about the dodgers followed by barry jackson on the marlins Alright, so we are ready to talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers with podcast standby, Andy McCullough, not of The Athletic, one of the few, still... Of the LA Times and heading into his third season covering the Dodgers, isn't it about time for you to saddle up and move on to another city? <laughs> you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to settle down, get complacent here. Got to keep moving. Yeah,
2: this will be the uh, this will be the longest I've stayed on one team. If I finish the year, it'll be the longest I've been on one team forever. So yeah. ever. So uh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully there's not like an earthquake or something because I'd like to actually have some stability in my life.
1: Oh, I wanted you to complete the baseball beat writer bingo and just beat right for every team at some point in your career you yeah. were on pace, but, uh, you're slowing down.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sick right now and I, I fainted in the bathroom earlier. So, oh, no. uh, you know, I think, uh, I think I might not make it, but, uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, I don't know. It, it all depends just on my blood sugar and the newspaper industry, two very volatile sort of things.
1: <laughs> so we should talk about the Dodgers probably. And, uh, They're good and their projections. (laughs) Their projections are really good. good Podcast. Talk to you next year. (laughs) Yeah, which we'll probably be saying the same thing next year. We might even be saying they're better next year. I don't know. But I remember. It was last year, I think, that we were sort of ridiculing or or taken aback by the Pocota projection because the Dodgers were projected to win some high 90s number, and then it looked like for much of the year, I mean, it, it did turn out to be prophetic, and uh obviously they came back to earth a bit, but it looked like we were silly for doubting that they were actually that much better than every other team, but... Currently, their picota projection, and I don't think their their FanGraphs projection is is such an outlier, but have them separated by ten games from any other team in the National League. I mean, we'll get to your win projection at the end of this podcast, I guess. But were you surprised to to see such a big number?
2: Yeah, I was not. Uh, I was not surprised to see it was at ninety nine wins. I mean, I guess you know. I mean, this is a team that won a hundred and four games last year, and pretty much the entire team is back except for, you know, like, Brandon Morrow, Chase Lee, Yu Darvish, and Tony Watson. I think, you know, I remember last year, like, we were talking about this, and uh, I think it was – Jeff was like, you know, like, uh, would you say they're the favorites over the Cubs? And I was like, are you, like, on drugs? Like, the the Cubs are a dynasty, man. And, uh, you know, I think the thing that the Dodgers have still that really – no other team has is just the depth i mean the depth and like it's a it's like it owns it's a punchline in la at this point but their depth is like so much stronger than you know almost every other club i mean and you look at like the projections and they have like two three win catchers which yeah. is like really <laughs> yeah. really unusual you know and like you know austin barnes like i don't know if Austin Barnes is even going to be the starter, but he's projected for like three and a half wins right now. And, and uh, and just, you know, so there, there's just no trouble spots on the roster really. And like everywhere there is, you know, a bit of uncertainty, like left field, they have like six guys vying for it, including like, you know, a guy in Andrew Tolles who had a really good season two years ago, a guy in Alex Verdugo, who's a top, you know, 30, 40 prospect, you know, uh, you know, Kike Hernandez who's a really good hitter against left-handed pitching. So there's just like, there's just, they have so many different bodies just able to you know to throw at any problem they have. It's, it's really impressive.
0: Clearly, two of the best teams in baseball right now are both the Yankees and the Dodgers. And both of those teams are teams who have tried to trim payroll. And I don't think anyone has really trimmed payroll quite like the Dodgers uh, as they try to get under the competitive balance tax, which they have succeeded in doing so far. As you write about the team, and clearly this has been their intent for a long time, but t- to what extent do you feel like it's necessary to actually stay under that threshold? Are there any exceptions that would be made?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if like Mike Rizzo, I mean, this is like my common, my standard line, but if like Mike Rizzo called and was like, hey, we'll trade you Bryce Harper if you take on his money, like, yeah, they would go over the tax for that. You know, it's like, hey, we'll trade you Mike Trout for, you know, like Julio Urias. Like, yeah, they'll take on the money for that. But I think like for the most part, they they want to have the flexibility to basically do whatever they want next winter. And so by rolling the tax back to 50 cents from 50 cents on the dollar to 20 cents on the dollar, you know, it gives them a lot more flexibility and, while, you know, I don't think it necessarily means they're just, hey, this means they're going to go get Bryce Harper. I do think, you know, they're going to be in on Harper. I do think they're actually going to be in on Manny Machado. I expect them to be in on on Andrew Miller. Uh, you know, if Zach Britton's alive, I expect them to, to be in on him. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of different ways that they could go with it. And, you know, this is all with the backdrop of trying to figure out a way to, you know, keep Clayton Kershaw, which I expect them to do. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. So, yeah, I think... You know, Getting under the tax was important in terms of it just – this is a front office under Andrew Friedman, the Farhan Zaidi, that always preaches the importance of uh, something they call optionality, which I have insisted (laughs) to Friedman is not a word, um, but he says it is. I can look it up now, but I choose to believe it's just not a word. But basically what optionality – it's like a Wall Street term and basically what it means is like – having options <laughs> so, <laughs> which is like wh- why i don't think it's a word but anyway <laughs> but like it just it's the idea that like don't make decisions until you need to make decisions you know don't put yourself in a scenario where you're not able to you know have different ways to get out of it and so i think by and again it's not like they shed money this off season they just rearrange the way they're paying the money you know they took their luxury tax number and while they traded away all those contracts, they still took on a good chunk of money in Matt Kemp. It's just spread out differently over the years. So, you know, I I think, like, I understand, you know, why uh, some free agents are frustrated and that, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers are not, you know, jumping into the deep end of the pool. But I would say that those teams are probably not where the problem lies in terms of spending. I mean, they've both been putting out, you know, $200 million a quarter, you know, of a billion payrolls year after year after year, and you know, I think they're trying to use the C, you know, trying to abide by the CBA in order to, um, you know, have some flexibility to do whatever they want next offseason. Whether that's you know sign Clayton Kershaw and Bryce Harper, or sign Clayton Kershaw and Manny Machado, or sign no one. I mean, who knows? Uh, I think they just want the option to do whatever it is they think is best next
1: year. You mentioned the catching situation. If you believe baseball prospectuses warp, which includes framing and both Barnes and Grundahl rate really well in that metric, I think... Dodgers catchers were like the fifth most valuable position on any team in baseball last year, just collectively, and I didn't really expect – I guess I'm sort of surprised to see the situation unchanged there because you did have Grandal who was one of the best catchers for years, and then Barnes comes along, takes his job – that's always awkward when you have a rookie taking a veteran's job, especially in the middle of the season like that. And then to just sort of let this go into 2018 without really, you know, either trading one. I think a lot of people thought maybe Grandal would be traded or anointing one as the starting catcher. I mean, is this a potentially like, problematic situation like it's gonna cause some sort of rift between these guys or are they both kind of okay with fighting for their jobs
2: well you know it's what they say if you have two catchers you don't have any (laughs) that's a football joke uh anyway yeah i mean i think again it comes back to you know being this like optionality thing like they don't need to trade Grandal right now, if if another team made an offer for Yasmani Grandal that they felt was more than Grandal is worth, I think they would certainly consider it. I mean, Grandal is one of the guys who you know, they feel pretty confident they could move if they want to get in, you know, if they are able to sort of win the negotiations with Darvish and, you know, need to move money to get back onto the tax. I think they feel fairly confident. Grandal's a guy they, they could, you know, trade pretty easily. But at the same time, you know, like Austin Barnes had a really great season last year, but his track record is also pretty limited. You know, he's a he's a uh, younger guy, a, a smaller guy. He's never really played a full season as a starting catcher. And, you know, they're, they're a pretty strong unit, you know do like going from Austin Barnes and Yasmani Grandal to Austin Barnes and Kyle Farmer is probably you know takes a, a position that was a significant strength and makes it a little more questionable and so mm-hmm. uh, unless you can get something back in return for Grandal that is like an obvious upgrade for the team Uh, It doesn't make a ton of sense now. Could it cause issues? I mean, I guess we'll see. You know, Grandal. You know, I would say he said the right things during the postseason, but he never really talked because it's the postseason, so you can't actually like talk to players. Uh, So, like, I, I, you know, I, I had heard he was fairly upset, and that's understandable. He's a prideful guy. He, you know, he had a decent season, and you know, he wanted to be back there. But I think you know what they will do is unless you know they sign darvish and need to trade grandal to clear the money i think what they will do is go into the season see who's playing better and just you know go from there and and that's kind of how they solve a lot of these problems is you know they don't solve problems by trading one of the guys away you know what they do is they just keep him around because they see you know he could have value later i mean it's like why they didn't you know try and trade jock peterson you know last summer when a, when he was playing so poorly you know just like well they, they traded for curtis granderson you know gotta get rid of jock you know get something for him now while there's still time it's like i well, just keep him and see if he comes in handy later and he was like one of their best hitters in the world series so uh i think their strategy of doing nothing uh is actually <laughs> like calculated because i i think a lot of times teams make mistakes when they feel like oh you know we need to get some clarity on this situation, you know, let's, you know, let's trade this guy. And it turns out, Oh, why don't we just keep both of them if we can? And that's kind of what I think they're going to do.
0: Is there anything more ideal than thinking really hard and coming to the conclusion that you don't have to do anything? Oh, that's just outstanding.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. The, you've mentioned Grandall and the idea of clearing money. At some point, this whole you Darvish thing is going to come to a head, whether he signs with the Dodgers or even like the twins, even though that seems far fetched, but The uh, most obvious player to try to move, of course, is Matt Kemp. If you even want to consider him a player anymore, he's basically just $43 million of dead money tied up in a human water sack. But the Dodgers have issued (laughs) quotes of, uh, you know, trying to maybe improve their own leverage or smooth over uh, relationships and say, oh, you know, Kemp's going to come to camp and compete for a job and he could play. He's not. Look, no, that's not. I don't think anyone believes that the Dodgers are actually going to do that, but what? is going to give here what where do you put the chances of the Dodgers finding a taker for Matt Kemp probably with by a by packaging a player with him versus just designating him for assignment because it's just almost impossible to see him actually making this roster right how would he possibly fit
2: yeah it's it would be you know it's as i've ever written it's, it's a pretty remote chance that he makes the roster now again there are a couple injuries away from you know that being something that they actually might consider but you know i don't really foresee it happening and and i think right now you know they're still content to try and get a team to eat as much money as possible so like you know, if a team says, like, hey, we'll pay $1 million of the 43, they're like, eh, no, we're not, you know, we're going to wait. And so, you know, obviously there's not a ton of suitors for Matt Kemp. You know, he, he has had an outstanding career, but, you know, his recent past is not the best. Uh, the contract is not favorable, and his defense is a real problem. So he's really like an AL player at this point, it seems like. But, you know, there's teams are, you know, let alone— you know, teams are not clamoring to spend money on aging veterans at this point. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the offseason. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean I think if there was a team willing to take like a quarter of Matt Kemp's contract, you know, like take ten million, I'm pretty sure the Dodgers would have sent him over at this point, but yeah, I think, you you know, again, you bring him to spring training, you see how he looks, see how he hits, you know, hope he's productive, you know, hope he's a good citizen, you know, all these sorts of things. And you hope that a, a player on another team gets hurt and there becomes a need for him. But if not, you know, you just eventually, you know, you cut him. And if, you know, there's some of the personality stuff that have been an issue in the past – surfaces while he's in the room in spring you can just cut him and say well you know we'll get him out of the room and you know not make it an issue but it doesn't sound like that's really going to be a problem i mean kemp understands the score you know kemp was acquired knowing he was they were trying to flip him so there's not really like a uh, you know there's not everyone here's you know acting like a grown-up and so i assume they'll they'll find a solution at some point during spring either through trade or if they exhaust that just kind of
1: dfaing yeah. You recently described his defense in print as, quote, less reliable, which I thought was very charitable. Although you could argue that it's very reliable. It's just... Yeah, that's that's fair.
2: I, I yeah, I, I, you know, it's hard, to, you can't write in a newspaper like, he sucks. Because, <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he sucks. Like, because I haven't, you know, I don't watch baseball. Like, uh, so, like, it could just be the metrics are wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I've heard he's not very good at defense.
1: <laughs> so, Yasiel Puig, has been a story in the last day or so because Uh, his agent dumped him and no one knows if he has a new one or if he's trying to get a new one is this like a a Dodgers story I mean like does it impact the Dodgers in some way is it a bad sign that one assumes that Puig did something that his agent found distasteful. Like, it's been a while on the the Yasel Puig front since there was some kind of concerning story about his behavior, and it seemed like he was morphing into this more mature clubhouse guy, almost, as well as resurrecting his, his Why career. Did so. like Why <laughs> did it seem like that? Why did it seem like that? Well, we, it's been a while since the last, like, he was late to something, right? Or like someone is No, no, it hasn't. No, <laughs> that's
2: the thing. No, I mean he was, he was, he was benched by Dave Roberts in like the last week of September for he was benched for doing something dumb in a game, and then mm. the next day he showed up late. He was benched like two days in a row because of this. Like. In like literally like the last week of the season. <laughs>
1: Who's paying attention to the Dodgers in the last week of the season? So it's been a whole few months since. I mean, <laughs> it was basically like <laughs>
2: he hit. He hit in the postseason in the first two rounds. He yeah. had a good first two rounds, and everyone's like, "Oh, it's a new, mature Yaziel Pui. And it's right. just like, no, he just hit. <laughs> like he's the same guy. Like, and it's not like, and it's not like he's like a huge problem, you know, even when he's doing you know, doing dumb stuff. It's just like, you know, this idea that gets pushed around that's like, you know, every time he starts hitting that he's like a new guy, it's like, no, he's the same guy. Like it's, you know, he he, he literally got just like benched by Dave Roberts a week before the postseason started. And like three weeks later, you know, people are writing about it, like wow like Yaziel has really changed. And I'm just like, ah, my head's gonna explode. Like it's just so,
1: so what does it mean then that he's what a year away from free agency at this point? I think he's and, a
2: year away from being able to opt into a year of arb, and then oh, okay. he can become a free agent. Right. He can so, become a free agent. I want to say in twenty. He's got a weird contract. Yeah,
1: still a strange time for an agent to part ways yeah. with a player. So
2: yeah, I mean, look, you know, the agents had nothing to say yesterday. You know, I call, I talked to you know several members of the of the the agency. Uh, you know, they had they didn't have anything. to say and that's fine you know it's just weird like i've never seen an agent announce like we are no longer repping someone you know there was some chatter that he was you know he just did some stuff that they didn't want to deal with but you know the dodgers people i talked to say it's not going to affect their world so it's not like a legal thing to my understanding i mean i did we did the you know the times did the standard sort of legal you know background check type stuff and so it's not like there's a you know, there's anything there. And, it, you know, and it's like, it's not fair, honestly, that, you know, like, we didn't even put that in the story, you know, like, Puig's name did not come up any databases for arrest, because like, this is not, you know, it's just not fair. But I don't know why I'm saying it on the podcast. <laughs> <had a> podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, you like, you know, we did the, like, the standard background check to see if there was more yeah. stuff going on. It seems like it was just kind of a, you know, his agents got sick of, Of dealing with him I guess I mean I'm curious to talk to him next week and see what he has to say about it because you know his agents have obviously stood by him through you know some pretty some pretty rough stuff over the years and Mm -hmm. so uh you know I think maybe they just got tired of them i i I honestly i don't know you know if i knew more i would have written it but you know from the from what i've heard on like you know third hand is yeah they just kind of got tired of them but you know who knows and 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 really like who cares
0: (laughs) a lot a lot of well you know what i don't actually know the answer to that so yasiel puig's uh personality let's say hasn't changed clayton kershaw's personality hasn't changed maybe his performance has Mm, segue so Four years ago, Clayton Kershaw went on the disabled list, missed about six starts. Two years ago, we went on the disabled list, missed about 12 starts. Last year, disabled list missed about six starts. Lots of missed starts over the span. His ERAs have also gravitated around two, so he's still amazing, even despite last year's home run problem. Long story short... Clayton Kershaw Health update, please.
2: He says he feels great. (laughs) You know, he would also prefer not to talk about this. You know, I'm just looking. I just wanted to look uh, at his numbers real quick. Man, he was awesome last year, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, but it's weird because, like, when you watch, it's, you know, he's so, like, he he had the most wins. He had the lowest ERA. He had the best strikeout to walk. Like, man, he was really good. And yet, like, I don't think anyone would you know, he, he set the standard so high for himself that, you know, you kind of look at it and you're like, eh, well, you know, just, uh, you know, he missed a few starts. It's like, well, yeah, but he still won 18 games. I mean, that's really impressive. Um, Yeah, his health. That is a good question. So Kershaw is always going to say he's fine. And it's just hard with him sometimes because he's so private. And, you know, like, like, for example, you know, he had a really bad back injury. 2 years ago right in 2016 and you know one of the things that talking to doctors about the condition he said he had is that if you are experiencing shooting pains down your leg you know you have to worry about surgery you know and surgery obviously is a big deal you know could career altering season ending etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know he was asked last year or 2 years ago like hey are you feeling uh, you know, shooting pains down your leg. And he was like, no, no, not at all. And so he hurt his back less seriously this year. You know, he still missed, you know, five, six weeks. Uh, but at some point, you know, I asked him, I was like, are you feeling, you know, shooting pains or anything like that? And he was like, no, no, it's not like it was last year. And I'm just like, oh so you okay all right like you know it's just like it's hard because he protects the you know he protects the information about his health so well that you know everyone in the organization is essentially terrified to talk about it like in order to like talk to say like the strength and conditioning coach about like kershaw he needs to get clearance from kershaw to like talk about it because they just you know clayton is just very protective of his privacy and he's very protective of, you know, the information that goes out about him. He doesn't want, you know, people to be talking about, uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, I mean, I guess like his vulnerabilities on the mound. So, you know, he says he's fine. I I guess we'll see. You know, it's not... I'm not going to just come out and say like, yeah, oh, I expect him to go on the DL at some point this year. I, I have no idea, but he did a lot of work last year to sort of rebuild his back and he still injured it again. So, you know, it's 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 hard. It's, you know, generally when guys start getting hurt as pitchers, they don't stop getting hurt. But, you know, his work ethic and his, you know, drive to sort of be, you know, the best and drive to, you know, set himself apart from his peers, I think, you know, you, you would bet on him having a successful season. But do I see him making – you know, 35 starts, uh, you know, it's, that's it, kind of hard to project at this point.
1: So Chris Taylor's coming into the season Not as the guy no one's really Expecting that much from but As a guy coming off a really good year Seems to be likely the starting Center fielder how much Of a I I guess regression Are you expecting if any
2: A little bit but not not a huge Amount like I want to say he was like 850 OPS last year does that that sound about Right yeah so he had an 850 on The dot wow that's good beat writing (laughs) Uh, Yeah he had an 850 OPS Last year you know the production Projection systems have them at about you know, some. I've seen them as low as like seven thirty, and others probably more around eight hundred. I, you know, I think if he can be somewhere between seven seventy five and eight hundred, you know, hit you know ten to fifteen home runs. Uh, play good defense in center field. He's a two to three win player and that's, that's a real huge asset. I, you know, I don't see him being, you know, hitting 21 homers again and, you know, 35 doubles. That's kind of hard to predict, but I expect him to be, you know, a a good player. I mean, a lot of what he did, he had a real good up last year. And a lot of that was because he was, you know, hitting rockets, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't see, he's not a guy who I watched last year and think like, wow, this guy's going to fall off a cliff, you know, at some point, like he looks like a good player. So I would expect he'll be a good player again, but just the league getting to know him a little better. And, you know, the fatigue of having played a full season last year, I expect a, a slight regression, but still a pretty successful player.
0: So last year, Pedro Baez had about the same ERA as Cody Allen, Gio Gonzalez, James Paxton, Will Harris, 295. Pedro Baez has been a pretty good reliever for a number of years. Strikeout reliever, power pitcher. You, of course, have had the experience of watching him from a professional seat. Others have had the experience of watching him from a a casual fan-based seat. Seems like, at least uh, anecdotally, Pedro Baez might have the widest gap between actual value and the way people think about him. What is your estimation of Pedro Baez as a player and his value as a player to the Dodgers, and would would you prefer that they no longer employ him?
2: Uh, no, I've made this point. Uh, first of all, I would never say that about any player, uh, you know, that a team should not employ him. I I made peace with Jeremy Guthrie during the postseason. We're friends. So, you know, I have no, I harbor no ill will to any baseball player. First of all, as a writer, I think he's great because he slows down the game and he gives <laughs> him more time to write. So he's like fantastic when he comes in in the seventh inning because it's like, oh man, I got like 20 minutes. <laughs> extra to write tonight. This is good. Yeah, Baez, despite what the numbers, you know, like the peripheral, or not the peripheral, but like the the base numbers say was um, pretty terrible last year, especially in the second half. I mean, he had a 5-1-3 5.13 ERA in the second half, uh, you know, opposing hitters hit like 830 OPS against him. And even in the first half, like a lot of it, like his FIP was not great. You know, there was the strikeout to walk was down, you know, just like he, he's okay. He's a useful player for the regular season. He's not a player that I would particularly trust in the postseason unless he was pitching excellently. Coming into it, you know, he's a guy who goes through streaks and, you know, he's fine. He's a reliever. He's not nearly as bad as, you know, fans want to think he is. He's a, he's like an average reliever, but he's also not nearly as excruciating. I feel like as, as a lot of people pretend he is, you know what I mean? Like I, I he became he's sort of become like this like like target for abuse just because he's slow and he doesn't have the best results and you know, there are a lot of bad relievers out there and Pedro Baez is not one of them. But I think it's a little uh misleading to be like, Well, he had the same ERA as Cody Allen. It's like, yeah, but he he's he's not the same pitcher. Uh,
1: I wanna ask about Cody Bellinger, I guess. Is he Just going to be set at first base? Do you expect him to move around a bit like he did last year? And I don't know. I mean, he was still really good in the second half. So I don't want to say he inflated expectations too much with the home run barrage in the first half. He was a little bit of a different hitter, but still an excellent one. I mean, what do you see his power potential being in sort of a a typical full season?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I see him being a good player. In 2018, you know, probably maybe again a, a little bit of regression, but you know, but still really productive. You know, probably in the 25 to 35 homer range. Um, you know, probably in the you know 800 to 850 to 900 OPS. I know these are pretty wide bars, but you know, I see him being pretty useful. And I, you know, he. I don't know if they'll move him around a lot. They have a pretty crowded outfield already, and they don't really have uh, unless you know Rob Segadin really takes off. They don't really have a, another first baseman who they need to give it bats to so you know i see him pretty much anchored at first base i i do think it's interesting you know his his ability to move around uh you know might make them a little more keen on manny machado next off season but that's neither here nor there and so yeah i mean i think he'll have a good year i you know i, I really don't know i again there's a lot of miss in the swing you know balls might not be as juiced and so the power you know might come down a little bit but this is a guy who's you know hit at every level he's been at you know he's got a real you know real real power strokes so uh, I expect him to be a good player. You know, I, I don't think he'll take the league by storm the way he did last year, but I think as a number four, number five hitter, he'll have a lot of value.
0: So, of course, you you mentioned you wouldn't project Kershaw to make 35, 34 starts anymore. This is not new news, but you've got Rich Hale, Kent Alex Wood, Hyunjin Ryu behind Kershaw. Of course, there is a lot of health uncertainty in that rotation. What is the Dodgers rotation depth at this point? I'm I'm looking at names. I don't know if the names are correct, but who are in, in your head, the uh, the six to ten starters right now, and do you think that because of this rotation, there is that urgency to sign Darvish, or would the Dodgers remain content to do as you said, nothing and just kind of wait and see until midseason?
2: Well, they, they are definitely interested in signing Darvish. I mean, you know, they've they've stayed in on him, you know, for a while, and and there's some belief that you know Darvish is you know one of the reasons he hasn't just jumped and signed yet is because he's he wants to see if the Dodgers can clear the money to make it work, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you got the five guys and then you've got, uh, you know, Stripling, Brock Stewart, Walker Bueller, you know, Wilmer Font, uh, your guy. Our guy. You know, I mean, so it, it – it, it, our guy. <laughs> and so it, uh, it, it tops off a little bit. I mean, it's one of the things that they, you know – I was a little surprised that they traded McCarthy cuz I felt like McCarthy still had uh, a decent amount of value in that spot but I understand why they did it for the you know for the luxury tax stuff so yeah I mean it, it it's not as impressive as it was last year I think because you know they're banking on Ryu being you know, a real quality pitcher again, or being at least upright again. And, you know, Ryu had a, had a nice bounce back season last year, but he hadn't done that the previous two years. And it was really, you know, kind of seen as a huge upset that he was able to, you know, make the team. So, uh, I think, you know, that, that there's a chance if, you know, if Ryu goes down, you know, they may ask Stripling to go back in the rotation or Stewart. Um, and, and the hope, is that Bueller, who they really love, and who has had you know good results in the minors and has really good stuff? The hope is that you know Bueller can contribute in the rotation later in the year, but you know we'll see. I mean, I, I would expect they also have to, uh, Tom Ke- Ke- Keller. How do you pronounce <laughs> it's that?
0: Not Kohler, name? is it not Tom <laughs> Kohler?
2: Tom, Tom I Culler. might have never actually I, heard know, it I, out loud. Yeah, I mean, I I do this for a living. They signed him when I was on a plane, so there wasn't like a no one actually ever said his name aloud. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the depth is not as uh, as impressive as it was uh, last year, but I still think it's pretty solid.
1: Would you expect O'Rias to pitch for the Dodgers this year? No, I don't
2: think so you know, they don't even expect him to be off a mound in spring training. I think they're going to take their time. And and really, like, there's no rush. I mean, you know, they, they want Urias. They need to get Urias right. They don't need to get him back. So if he is, you know, looks great, feels great, there's no setups, no setbacks, no hiccups, no nothing, maybe he comes up. But I think, you know, they recognize, I mean, this is this is a kid with a, a ton of potential that you know, if if he has any sort of, you know, setback, they're going to be very very cautious with him, so I, I would not expect Arias to, you know, to pitch for the team this year.
0: Last year, Austin Barnes had one of the very lowest swing rates in baseball, Logan Forsythe, had the actual lowest swing rate in baseball. He swung at just 32% of pitches. Do you think that they have some sort of running bet on who can swing the least and remain a <laughs> useful player? Is there anything that, like, is what, what part of your job do you try to do so infrequently, and still, I guess, find a way to be successful? This is a poorly phrased question, <laughs> but Logan Forsyth and Dawson Barnes don't swing. That's the point. Respond to that.
2: When I was in uh, when I was in college, I you know my friends and I had a softball team. And, uh, I was a really, uh, it's gonna be hard to believe, but I was a very bad hitter. Um, you know, all I could do was basically hit a ground ball to the shortstop. I couldn't get it in the air. Couldn't do anything. Right. So at some point, like midway through the season, I realized my best offense was walking. So I was just like, Oh, I'm just going to try and walk every time. And, you know, it's hard to throw a strike in, in slow pitch softball. And so one of the things I started doing was coming up to the plate without a bat in, <laughs> and like basically, and like openly taunting the pitcher, basically saying like, I will get a bat when you throw a strike and force me to two strikes. Cause the count starts one, one. And so like, Uh, It really upset people. Like it was like people really did not like that. So I would say that is my answer to that question.
1: So, I've been doing these top 10 positional ranking things for MLB Network. And one of the ones I remember struggling with was Jock Peterson and left field, because there just aren't that many left fielders, period, like full time regular left fielders. So, I think I did end up putting him on toward the bottom of that list, but he's been up and down, obviously. It seems like the Dodgers haven't always had the most faith in him at times. Do you think this is the year when they just sort of leave him alone and he actually stays in the majors all year and is good?
2: Uh, (laughs) um, I don't know. I mean, he was, you know. It's not like they messed with him last year. I mean, they sent him down because he stunk. Mm -hmm. And they traded for Curtis Granderson because he stunk, because he'd fallen off a cliff and they were trying to win a World Series. And, you know, they thought, you know, I I don't think anyone predicted Granderson would be the worst player in baseball history when the Dodgers signed him or traded for him. So it's funny. Like, they, Dodgers officials will talk about things that Peterson has done. You know, it's just like reminders. Like, you know, like I I did the story last year on game five of the 2016 NLDS and it's one of the forgotten things in that but jock tied the game off with a homer off max scherzer on like uh, you know an eye level fastball like up and away that he like powered out and uh, you know farhan Saidi, the gm was like anyone who forgets like what jock is able to do as a player needs to take a look at that home run and and like understand this is why like we're not giving up on him you know and like you saw it in the world series i mean the guy had been cold for pretty much a month, not even playing and hit three homers, you know, like had a bunch of hits was, you know, getting on base, like uh, was one of their most productive players. And so the potential is there. I mean, he, he's never going to win a batting title. He's always going to give it bats away from striking out. But I think, you know, he looks to be in pretty good shape, you know, which is based on the eye test of watching him at Dodgers Fan Fest and him not looking as fat as me. So, you know, like that's encouraging. You know, like he, he seems like he's in pretty good shape. He's obviously motivated, you know, because they, you know, no one likes being sent down. And so, I you know, I expect him to be useful, but, you know, it's just hard. He, he's a guy who can go off a cliff very quickly. You know, it's just his production can can fall and falter pretty quickly because he's, you know, he's not like a, a Corey Seager type hitter who you know can just kind of maintain effectiveness even when he's going through slumps um, you know so yeah I mean I, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens because they have a lot of other guys pushing for at-bats there and left you know I mean they got Verdugo they got Andrew Tolles you know Kike Hernandez is going to get some run there so you know they, they still employ Matt Kemp so there's a lot of other options if they feel like Jock isn't up to it
0: actually real real quick on the Kemp money because the Dodgers have sent money to other teams in the past to cover him and now they have him back Are they? I haven't been able to work this. Are they double paying for Matt Kemp? Are they paying like the money that they sent to the Padres when they traded for Kemp? Was that money tied specifically to the Kemp obligation? Or is that just money that they sent to the Padres? I've been wanting to work this out for a while.
2: I don't think they're paying for it twice. I yeah, I don't think I think they just add that to the books. Okay. I don't, they're not paying the Padres. They're paying for Kemp
0: Okay. Okay. That's what I assumed. So, but otherwise, you know, it's so looking at the, the Dodgers' recent history, they of Who course, can they, say? <laughs> <laughs> why not just shell out $45 million for a player who's not going to play a game for you? The past few years, the Dodgers have won more games than any other team in baseball. Of course, they continue to be first place in the National League West, and they have thus far continued to not win the World Series, which is, of course, a source of great frustration and agony for all area fans has covering this team changed at all your perspective of maybe what a good team is what a model franchise is of course you're coming to cover the Dodgers after having watched the Royals get to where they got to but the Royals are in a very different cycle than the Dodgers so how do you how do you talk about the Dodgers with fans who might express that they're very disappointed that this team just can't get over the top.
2: Yeah, it's it's a weird uh it's a weird line to straddle because I feel like, you know, I play uh, I play poker a decent amount and uh, so I I'll end up talking with, you know, Dodgers Have fans you been at the poker table during
1: this podcast. It's, it <laughs> sounds like no, I, I, I hear mean, chips. I am, I am
2: sh- I am shuffling poker chips. That's just like a weird tick I have. <laughs> <Okay>. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I was I
2: was on the phone with with uh, Bill Plasky, our wonderful columnist, like a couple weeks ago, and I was just shuffling chips. He's like, "Are you at the bike?" And I was like, "No, no, no, I'm at home." He's like, "Oh my god, what are you doing, man?" Uh, anyway. Um uh, Was that so, your Plashky? But anyway, so No, I can do a better Plasky. I'm just sick right now. I'm sorry. Flashkey's <laughs> great. You guys should have flashkey on. He would be so confused. It's like, what swing rate? <laughs> what, what are y'all talking about? Flashkey uh, rules, man. He's the best. Anyway, you know, so I talk to fans a decent amount, like in my personal life, I guess, like when I'm, you know, <laughs> trying to just uh, take their money. And uh, it, it's weird because, like, you don't want to come out and say, like, like as the beat writer, as like the, you know, representative for a news organization. You know, like I feel like I'm entitled to explain, you know, like the truth. Like, and the truth is, is that, you know, or at least like what, my assessment of it, just being, you know, objective about it, is the Dodgers are a model franchise. You know, they've won five, maybe even six at this point. I don't know. They've won the division like five years in a row. They are steamrolling the competition in terms of like, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, regular season play. They're set up where it's hard to envision them not being a great team at any point in the next five years. You know, so there's so much to, you know, appreciate about what they're doing in in, in a field where, you know, it's very challenging to do so. At the same time, fans don't care. Fans want to win. Fans want – to win a world series. And I think, you know, you have to acknowledge that, you know, the organization has not been able to do that. And also explain to you know, and you have to like take into account that you, know, you can't lecture fans and say like, no, you don't realize how good you have it because it's not our job, you know, as a, as, as the newspaper to tell fans how to feel about things. It's just our job to explain, the situation as best we can and I feel like I've, I've tried to you know to straddle that to you know I, I think it's it's kind of stupid to say like well you know they can win in the regular season but they can't win the big one because like you know like come on at the same time they haven't won the big one so I you know I don't know <laughs> like it's objectively like it's tough you know it's like talking about Clayton Kershaw's you know postseason and like you know I'm one of these guys who is pretty I, I think this idea that Kershaw sucks in the playoffs is ridiculous. I mean, there's, I can think of, I mean, even in the past two years, I've covered, you know, I can think of like five games where he was tremendous in the playoffs at the same time. Mike Trout. <laughs> I mean, look, man, the next hit Mike Trout gets in the postseason will be his second. All right, guy. I've covered all three of Mike Trout's playoff choke jobs. and uh, <laughs> No, but like, But like, uh, you know, at the same time, fans, when they think, you know, I would say the majority of fans, you know, not the fans like who, you know, like read Dodgers Digest or like True Blue LA or like, you know, like the super into it, super analytical fans, but like the majority of like average guy who just wants to watch the game and enjoy it does not sit around and say like, man in game one of the World Series, Clayton Kershaw pitched in a hundred degree weather, struck out eleven Astros, it was just incredible. They're like, why did Kershaw give up those homers in game four? <laughs> you know, or game five. Like they're furious that, you know, they gave Kershaw a four run lead and then a three run lead and he couldn't hold either of them. And so, you know, you have to just acknowledge like, look, Kershaw's had some great games in the postseason and he's had some bad games in the postseason. And it's really as simple as that. And you know, to have to say anything else is kind of, I think, you know, uh, you're not really, I mean, all you can do is just point out what's actually going on. And so uh, it, it is a challenge in terms of like trying to explain to fans like, well, you know, actually like what Dave Roberts does with the bullpen is usually really effective. And like, he made a mistake here, but I think these other five things you're upset about are pretty standard for what they do. You know, it's just like so boring that you're just like, yeah, anyway, so uh, let's just go back to playing
1: poker. <laughs> yeah. All right. You want to give us the traditional win total?
2: Uh, Yeah, I will say uh, 95 wins.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: All right. I think 95, they'll pretty comfortably win the division. I am short on the Rockies. I think the D-backs will be good, but they're going to miss JD. And I think Greg, going to have some more regression there. So yeah, I think they'll pretty comfortably win the division. And, you know, they'll be in contention to, you know, go to the World Series and maybe
1: win this time. All right, well, now that Pedro broke up sports writers' blues, I feel like I should have asked you to declare who the aces are and aren't this year because otherwise no one will know if you don't have a, a public oh. platform for that but
2: uh well we do we do have an annual dinner at spring training it's called the naming of the aces dinner yeah. that, uh, a bunch <laughs> of uh writers attend and uh you know we go through phases because like. One year, I like, so like two years ago, I want to say, like I did a bunch of research and like actually like charted out like what I think. And it was, I was like really, I was, I was right on like everyone. Like I just, you know, I'm, I consider myself the preeminent judge of pitching talent of my generation, (laughs) you know, like I, you know, I consider myself a leading voice in explaining who is and what is an ace. Uh, And so I was very, like I nailed everything. And then last year, I think the people at the dinner decided, like, it wasn't as entertaining. It's much more entertaining for me to do it just off the top of my head yeah. uh, with no research. And I was like, it was so bad. It was like, I think I had, like, Wei Yin Chen as, like, a number two or something. And, you know, I was talking about guys who were, like, out for the year. I was like, oh, yeah, Shelby Miller, like, he's a three. And like, he's not going to pitch this year. Uh, you know, so uh, there were some really bad ones. So I think, I think I'm think i going to do a little bit of research this year. But as if I had to say who are the aces in baseball right now, it's uh, it's Kershaw, Scherzer, Sale, and Kluber. Rich Hill. Uh Rich, Rich Hill <laughs> rules, man. Rich Hill, <laughs> man. Rich Hill is just so great. He is, uh,
1: man. Yeah, Rich Hill's an ace in my heart
2: <laughs> for sure. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we will let you go. This was to, fun. To uh, heal and, yeah. and recuperate. So uh, <laughs> yeah. thanks for coming on. Glad you're still writing about Yeah, the anytime, Dodgers. guys. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, guys. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back to talk to Barry Jackson of the Miami Herald about the Marlins. The segment will be slightly shorter both because Barry's time was a little limited and because we've been talking about the Marlins all winter. What more is there to say? Actually, a few things. And you will hear them in a moment. The sound. How intriguing, quite deceiving Alright, so it is time to talk about the Miami Marlins as if we haven't been talking about the Marlins all winter long. As mentioned previously on the show, they have traded the most wins above replacement ever dealt in a single offseason. And they are projected to be the second team ever to go from having the best outfield in baseball by war to having the worst outfield in baseball by war. But to talk Marlins today, we are joined by a longtime Miami Herald reporter, Barry Jackson. Hello, Barry. How are you? Hi,
3: Ben. Good to be with you.
1: Yeah, good to have you. First of all, I mean, you cover all the sports teams in the area. How is sports? covering the Marlins different in the the type of stories that you report and the style of reporting that you do? Because you've you've done so many different types of reporting this winter on the Marlins, whether it's diving into financial documents and contracts and players demanding to be traded. It seems like it would call on a a wider variety of skills maybe than most teams regularly do.
3: It definitely would. Obviously doing the type of investigative work that's been required with the Marlins coverage this offseason, is very much different from covering the Miami Dolphins or the Miami Heat. And people are just so interested in, in finding out what is Derek Peter's accurate master plan as opposed to what he's been telling people publicly. So that's been fun to be able to obtain documents from potential investors. And it really shed a lot of light into what his plan is, which frankly is to make a lot of money and to give himself a bonus that seems profitable. And obviously, he wants to win. There's no question about that. But making money, at the very least, not losing money is clearly his priority at this point. And I think that's partly a function of the fact that the way he was able to attract investors is by assuring them that they would not be asked to cover losses. There would be no cash costs. So that has driven all of these off-season decisions. And when he says that, uh, it hadn't worked the way the Marlins have been doing things, and that's why they dismantled the team. Certainly, there's some truth to that. However, I think the bigger reason for the dismantling is the fact that they're under tremendous pressure financially to not lose money because he's not in a position to go to his 15 partners. He and his Sherman can't go to their 15 partners and say, look, we're still losing a lot of money. We need you to cover these losses because they had assured them that would not happen.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were tweeting recently about the new SI piece about Derek Jeter and uh, maybe some misinformation that's in there based on your reporting. What is he claiming that you don't believe is accurate? Well,
3: Tom Verducci obviously is a horrific writer, but I thought this piece is definitely really planted toward Jeter, basically allowing him to say anything he wants and having it go on talent. When Jeter says he's not making $5 million a year, he's not giving himself a bonus Profitability—that's simply untrue. If you believe the document that he's given, the potential investor would specifically said he's doing both of those things. He also said that he did not want to really trade Stanton, which is simply not the case because people who have talked in the early stages of the purchase of the team said that that was always the intention. That there was no way that he could realistically flash payroll. Uh, by the $50 million that he needed to flash it, basically the team would have been $140 million to keep it together. He wanted a payroll at 90. There would have been no way to realistically achieve that without getting rid of $25 million. And Jeter was aware of that. So when he says that that wasn't his plan, that's you know uh, disingenuous for him to say. Uh, so those are two examples in that piece. Uh, he absolved himself of all blame for the dismissals of Jeff Conai and Jack McKee and Tony Perez and Andre Dawson. When in truth, he called up the team president before the sale of the team had been closed and told them, uh, and told uh, David Sampson, I want you to fire these four people. Uh, but of course, Jeter doesn't admit that. And then he discusses a town hall meeting in which he's claimed someone said to him, Why don't you just add two pitchers? And, and Jeter's correct when he says he did respond by saying, What two pitchers would you sign? Uh, but then Jeter makes the claim that even if they signed two high-end pitchers like Hugh Darvish and uh, Jake Arrieta, that the team would still not be a contender, which I think is highly uh, dubious statement because this team did win 77 games, even with Justin Bord missing a lot of time due to injury. And if you put two high-end starters, or at least two capable starters, as those two are, with Jose Urena, Dan Straley, and a fifth starter with this lineup, of course this team would have been able to contend for a wild card burst. I won't go as far as to say they would have been World Series champion caliber, but I mean, if you put two capable starting pitchers on a team that is that was as offensively gifted as this team that won 77 games, I think you can realistically expect to get to the 85 to 90 win mark. And that would have been enough to at least compete for a wild card berth, even if they were not as good as Washington in that scenario on paper.
0: So, if you're coming at this from the fan perspective, of course it was it was glorious to have the team sold in the first place. Never mind the identity of who was buying it, but just to get out from under Lori and and Samson was it had the potential to be a, a watershed for this organization. And of course now we know a little bit about the new ownership group. We've had one off season to observe them. And so if, you are, if you're a Marlins fan, I'm sure you're wondering, is is this rebuild being done in good faith, or is this going to be more of the same? So what is your early read on how this team is going to be run relative to an ordinary other, hopefully successful rebuild in some other city?
3: Well, I think the chances of them being successful hinge almost entirely on how these prospects do. They need most of the prospects acquired in these sport, uh, trades to be good, obviously, and they need that uh, because it doesn't appear as though they're going to be able to supplement the roster with high-end free agents unless revenues rise dramatically. And at this point, there's no indication revenues are going to rise. It's, it's difficult to project this team's attendance going up in the next several years. Sponsorship money might go up a little bit, but it's not going to be dramatic. Their TV deal is the worst in baseball. It runs through 2020. After that point, they're hoping for an enormous jump, $20 million to about $50 million. If that happens, that will be hugely helpful. But there's no assurance it will happen because the Marlins are probably going to generate low TV ratings the next few years. And you wonder about Fox's incentive to uh, give them a large jump in rights. And in fact, ESPN, if you guys know, is buying Fox Sports Regionals, so it might ultimately be ESPN's decision on how much to pay the Marlins. So I think uh, the, the plan is well-intentioned in the sense that I could see the point of rebuilding. But there's no indication that they will eventually be able to supplement the roster with the talent needed to add supporting players around these prospects. So my sense is they're going to have a very narrow window to win. Let's say all of these prospects, or at least the vast majority of them become good major league players. Then I can imagine by 2020 or 2021, they could be able to touch lightning in a bottle and maybe contend for a year or two, but if the revenues don't rise beyond that point, then you're going to be in a position where they're going to have to trade those players if they can't afford to keep them when they're eligible for arbitration and eventually free agency. So that's the big unknown. Can this uh, this group of prospects have long term if they all pan out, or are you going to be in a spot where maybe you'll have them for a couple of years and you might be able to contend, say, in 2020 and 2021, but then have to dismantle again? That's the unknown variable because we don't know if the revenues are going to
1: jump. Jeff, you described what the Marlins are doing as a rebuild. And if you had read the Verducci article, you would know that Derek Jeter has banned people from describing it as a rebuild. It is just a build. So you can apologize (laughs) to Jeter. Yeah, he told us he hates that word. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. So based on your read of the financial situation and and the ownership and the debt that Loria left, do you think that this was the right choice as an ownership group? Was there another bidder? Could there have been another bidder that would have been able to shoulder the financial load more easily than this one and, and not have to do what this one did? Or do you think this sort of build was inevitable?
3: I think this was clearly the wrong choice as an ownership group, but I don't blame Jeffrey Lawyer for selling the team to this group because they did $200 million more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Jorge Moss came in at $1 billion. The third bidder for the team, Wayne Rothbaum, had come close to $1.2 billion, but then lost a key investor who dropped out late in the process. So his final number was $1 billion or slightly south of it. So, heck, you know, if you were selling something, you would sell it to the highest bidder in nearly every case. So you can't blame Jeffrey Warrior for doing that. What I think is distasteful about the process is Rob Mansford saying that he did not know what their master plan was when clearly he did know. He was aware that they planned to dismantle the roster and reduce payroll. And that didn't seem to concern him. He gave no thought at all to the corrosive effect that another dismantling would have on baseball in this market. He was purely concerned about how much the team would get so that, you know, when a higher, uh, bigger market team went for sale, they could always say, look, the Miami Marlins were worth $1.2 billion. So, you know, fill in the team is going to be worth $1.8 billion because they're in the bigger market, have higher revenues. So that was Manfred's only concern during this process, not what impact it would have on South Florida fans.
0: Baseball season is right around the corner. Spring training starts in a week or two. Uh, everyone's excited. This is the time of year for everyone to get excited about their baseball team. And We've had you on to preview the Marlins, and so far, the only thing we've talked about is finances <laughs> and ownership and direction of the team. In your position, are you glad to have a team that is so unique to cover, or would would you wish that just once you could cover a baseball team where the first thing that somebody doesn't ask you about is ownership, and how much the team is going to spend.
3: No, it would be much nicer to have a team that has the financial wherewithal to be competitive year in and year out. So I think it's depressing uh, to be in a market where every decision is uh, fueled by money, by finances. Uh, It shouldn't be that way. And if it has to be that way, then this market either shouldn't have a team or should have a team with an owner who has the financial ability uh, to sustain losses and uh, it looks as though we're going to be burdened with this ownership group for years. Heck, I hope it works out because there'd be nothing better than South Florida to be able to experience a postseason for the third time since the Marlins came into existence in 1993, uh, and it could work. Again, it could potentially work if most of these prospects are fired in these trades for Stanton, Ozuna, Gordon, and Yellich pan-outs, and if the revenues rise enough where they can keep these players, or at least many of them, long term so i'm hoping that happens I, i'm skeptical only in the sense that there's no indication to me that the revenues will rise enough for them to be able to eventually have a big league competitive payroll in the 130 million 150 million dollar range Uh, Does that preclude you from winning at all? No. It just makes it very difficult to win for more than, you know, a lightning in a bottle scenario of maybe a year or two and then having to dismantle again.
1: You mentioned the attendance earlier, and last year's Marlins attendance was already the lowest in the National League, the lowest the Marlins had had since 2011, 1.58 million. How low can it go? I mean, why would anyone – want to pay money to see the Marlins given the product that they are putting on the field right now?
3: Right. Well, you know what, even though they announced 1.5 million last year, actually fewer than 900,000 people paid to go to Marlins last year. So I would expect attendance this year to be in that range. It's certainly not going to rise. Is it going to drop a lot? uh, You know, That remains to be seen. I don't think these ticket sales are going well from the indications I've been given. Uh, one question Jeter was asked at one of the town hall meetings was, why don't you allow at least kids in for free? Because I think that would certainly encourage parents to go. They would pay. Uh, but Jeter was resistant to that idea. He doesn't want anyone getting in the ballpark who hasn't paid. So that view, I, I could certainly understand his perspective, but it might ultimately cost him some people uh, in his ballpark. It, it's, uh, you know, their announced attendance the last four years in their new ballpark has been an arrangement twenty to twenty three thousand per game, but as far as people actually going through the turnstiles, styles, it's been closer to twelve to thirteen thousand and I think it's probably gonna
0: be in that range this year. I don't think Derek Jeter pays his own admission, so he's <laughs> kind of a hypocrite. It's difficult to bring up and I I feel insensitive even talking about it, but because it's been enough time i have to ask to what extent does the passing of jose fernandez i mean if if the marlins were any other organization operated with some normal ownership group in front office then it's it's pretty clear that the the passing of jose fernandez would have just irreversibly changed the course of the franchise because he was the most valuable player that the marlins had he was one of the most exciting players in the game do you think that the same is true for the Marlins. Do you think that they would be on a different course right now if not for the tragedy that happened a year ago? I
3: think last year they probably would have been right in there for a wild card burst, and I still think they would have dismantled this year because even having a competitive team would not have eliminated the financial obstacles that Jeter's group faced. I think it would have been made it more difficult for them to justify dismantling, but I still think he would have dismantled, Uh, again, going back to the reason I cited earlier, which is that he was able to lure investors to cover most of the costs of him buying the team by assuring them that they would not lose money. So that would have been the case whether Jose Fernandez were here or not. However, I think a dismantling with Jose Fernandez on the roster would have been greeted with even more disdain from Marlon Sainz, because at that point, fans would have known that with Jose, this would have been a contending team. Now Jose had only one year left on his or would have had only one year left on the contract. So uh, the great likelihood is that he would have been traded as well if Jeter uh, had to become owner because they would have known there would have been no way to afford him uh, in free agency with a deal that could potentially be 25 or 30 million a year.
1: How close do you think the current Marlins roster is to the one we'll see on opening day? Do you think that there will be further trades between now and then?
3: I think they would trade Real Muto only if they get uh, an absolutely Terrific package. At this point, they haven't been offered enough, and I think they have a confidence level that he's not going to be a bad apple if they bring him back. So I think this is largely the team we'll see. They do need to add an outfielder simply to have a body in one of the outfield positions they've got Derek Dietrich, uh, Lewis Brinson. Obviously, as you guys know now, they're top prospect. Those two would probably fill two of the jobs. I have no idea at this point who would be the third outfielder. It could be Magnera Sierra, the uh, outfielder, the CD outfielder they got from St. Louis in the, in the uh, Ozuna trade, I should say, uh, could be Braxton Lee, a double-A prospect. But at this point, there really is no credible candidate to fill the third outfield job. So they need to address that uh, potentially with a chief free agent. I don't know if they could afford Melky Cabrera who's been linked to them. Uh, John Jay has been another name that's been raised by, uh, by John Heyman. So I think there's still some potential for roster shuffling in the outfield. Their infield appears set. If they keep Starling Castro, who has asked for a trade, then they would have Justin Bour, Starling Castro, J.P. Riddle, and Martin Prado. And in reserve, they'd have Miguel Rojas, who's a very capable villain starter, and Brian Anderson, who was their top position player prospect going into this offseason. He's a third baseman who clearly has upside. And then Real Mudo behind the plate. Uh, Garrett Cooper is a bat. I think they're high on a former Yankee who they acquired. In October, he had 84 RBIs in 83 uh, games in the high minors last year. So I, I don't know that he'll put through with Justin Board, but I think he'll be a capable bat off the bench just judging off his, uh, his big league track record, or his minor league track record, I should say. Uh, the big question, obviously, guys, is their pitching staffs. They have two capable major league starters in Jose Urena and Dan Straley. They have, uh, obviously, many, many questions beyond that. You have Got 10 players competing for the third through fifth rotation spot. Adam Conley, Dylan Peters, Justin Nicolino, who has struggled since his acquisition from Toronto several years ago. None of the pitchers acquired in these trades for their four high caliber players this offseason appear to be ready to open the season in a big league rotation. Several will be given a chance. Sandy Alcantara might be closest of all the arms they acquired this offseason to being ready. Uh, to step into a big league rotation. And then their bullpen has the potential to at least be competent. Brian Ellington is a hard thrower, and they have some other pieces who at least can give you innings and are hard throwers. So uh, biggest question for this team, obviously, outfield, starting rotation. At this point, this looks to be a roster that you could maybe project for 60 to 65 wins. I think health will be a huge factor because their best remaining players, most of their best remaining players, had health issues the last couple of years. Astro missed a lot of games for the Yankees last year. Justin Bohr has not stayed healthy for his entire Big League career. Prado played in fewer than 40 games last year. But I think health will be a big issue in whether this team potentially could win 70 or whether they could be historically that.
0: Of course, Yelich asked that he was granted his wish. Realmuto has... Uh, I don't know if he's explicitly asked out, but at least through his agent, he has. You mentioned Starlin Castro has asked for a trade. Clearly, there are a lot of a lot of players who would like to not be on the Marlins right now. There are, of course, some free agents like you said. They're almost obligated to bring in some manner of outfielder who is alive and animated and capable of walking or running to the outfield, just to complete the roster. If you're the Marlins, how do you convince players now and and down the road that you are an option? as a team to sign with because, of course, no one wants the, the way that the team looks right now is just being torn down again. You figure that this team isn't operating in good faith, and it just seems like it's a toxic environment. So what do they have to do in order to, I'm not going to say establish themselves as a team just like any other, but to at least be a destination that a free agent wouldn't scoff at down the road?
3: It'd be difficult to achieve that process for what they've done in soft feet, but that seems so far down the road for them to be able to compete for higher-end free agents. If they sign free agents in the next two or three off-seasons, it's going to be low-money deals. So, uh, frankly, that would be an enviable problem for them to have, to be able to be a, a serious contender for high-end free agents. And I just can't see how that could happen before the earliest uh, 2021 After they get new money from a a new TV deal. All
1: right. So lastly, we ask every guest to name a a win total that they predict for the coming season. You've already named a range. Would you like to pick a a certain number within that range?
3: Yes, I'm going to go with 59 wins as the roster is currently constituted.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, we thank you for joining us. We hope, wish you luck in continuing to dig through the documents, which is what uh, covering the Marlins seems to entail. <laughs> Lots of emails to Players Association reps to ask if they're protesting anything currently. So thank you, uh, Barry. You can, of course, read Barry in the Miami Herald. Find him on Twitter at FLA Sports Buzz. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ben. Good to be with you. Okay, that'll do it. And as a reminder, you can find written team previews accompanying each of our team preview podcasts at the site started by Effectively Wild listeners, Spanish to the Pen. That's banishedothepen.com. They are always looking for writers if you're interested. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have recently done so include Will Benham Baker, Stephen Wade, Jeremy Ashton, B Core, and Seth Moland Kavash. Thanks to all of you. And one last reminder, about the Sabre Analytics Conference Research Awards. I am nominated for a Contemporary Baseball Analysis Award along with Mitchell Lickman for the article we wrote for The Ringer in June. The juiced ball is back. If you are so inclined to support that piece, you can vote for it at sabre.org or at Fangraphs, Baseball Prospectus, Hardball Times, or Beyond the Box Score. As I mentioned, lots of great pieces are nominated. In other categories, there's stuff by Sam and Jeff Passan and Grant Brisby and R.J. Anderson and on and on. Actually, there are 15 pieces nominated across the three different categories, and I think that the authors of 12 of them are Effectively Wild guests, so go support someone. The voting is open, I think, until the end of Monday. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Effectively Wild and rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can, of course, also contribute to the Effectively Wild wiki project that is going on. Lots of people doing little recaps of each episode so that we will have that as a resource. We're going to put together a data. Base of listener email questions and topics discussed on the show. Go to the Facebook group's files section. You can find instructions in the sign up sheet there, or you can just go straight to the wiki. There's a link in every show page at Fangraphs. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com at or via the Patreon messaging system. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back early next week with the next episode in our team preview podcast featuring the Cleveland. Indians and the Kansas City Royals.